Okay. Thanks, John, for doing the work there. It is 1 o'clock, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, John, will you open us up in prayer? Sure. Uh, let's look to the Lord. Father, uh, we thank you for such a wonderful day. Lord, we just look forward to the word that Chris will bring us. Lord, we look forward to our uh, Sunday worship through song and through the preaching of your word. Lord, we just thank you for drawing us together as the family of God. Lord, we look forward to what you're going to do uh, in this time. We look forward to what you're going to do in the rest of our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you. give you all honor, glory, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, for any of you guys who weren't here last week, what we did was last week we began a study over the book of Acts. Um, it's really um, supposed to be and hopefully is going to be a survey. Hopefully we'll move a lot quicker than we've been moving. Um, last week we covered only chapter 1. Today I think we're only going to cover chapter 2. Um, but from that point on I'm hoping to really move a little quicker um, just for the sake of the time that we have in this class. Um, I don't want it to go more than two or three months um, in the book of Acts. So what we did last week was we uh, did an introduction to the book of Acts. And to, by way of introduction, what we did was we actually went to the Gospel of Luke. And we used the Gospel of Luke and Luke's introduction to his Gospel. We used that as the introduction for the book of Acts. And the reason we did that is because the book of Acts is a sequel to the, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. He wrote both of these. And he actually addresses both of these letters to the same person, to a, a brother of his in the faith named Theophilus. And so we used his introduction to his first letter to cover the way he um, came about all this material that he, that he speaks about. He says he got it from the eyewitnesses, meaning from the disciples of Jesus. Um, this is how he gathered all of this information about Jesus, because Luke was not a disciple um, of Jesus in the first um, days of Jesus' ministry. We then looked in Acts chapter 1 at the ascension of Jesus. We looked at um, how Luke there described Jesus being taken from earth in his body and uh, being ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. That's what we looked at last week, and we kind of talked about why that's important. It's important because Jesus um, was taken into heaven with his body, with his resurrected body. The Bible says um, that the angels actually told the disciples, that he's going to return in the same way in, in his body. And all of this gives us assurance that we too will be taken to heaven in our resurrected bodies. We'll be united um, back with our bodies um, after death. Our soul will be united with our bodies and will be restored um, to how we were created, to the image of God, um, with our bodies. And then lastly, last week we looked at um, the replacement of Judas. Judas, the, the false apostle that betrayed the Lord, um, committed suicide, it's recorded for us. And so to restore the original number of 12 apostles, uh, the, the remaining 11 had to choose a, an apostle to take Judas's place. And, we, and, and they did that through the casting of lots. They seek the will of God on who was to take the place of Judas by the casting of lots. And so we talked about all the interpretive principles that we need to look at um, to come to the determination of why it is that we would not still seek the, the, seek the will of God by the casting of lots. We talked about how um, the casting of lots was something legitimate done in the, old, in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. 
uh, the Uman and the Thurman is something that the, the priests would use to determine the, the will of God, which is something similar to the casting of lots. Uh, but we pointed out how in all of the Gospels, and all of Jesus' ministry, you never see the disciples um, casting lots. You never see Jesus casting lots. Um, so as Jesus was ascended to the right hand of the Father after his resurrection, um, and this is before the Spirit has come, you see the, the, the apostles almost resorting back to an old covenant way of, of interacting with God. And so they casted lots. Uh, but then after the Spirit comes, we never again see uh, the people of God casting lots to figure out what God wants them to do. You never see it mentioned in the epistles. It's never commanded. Um, so from all of this, we gathered that the casting of lots is not legitimate um, for us in the new covenant. Okay, that's, that's what we did last week. This week we're going to move on to chapter 2. And uh, I have three headings for chapter 2. The first thing we're going to look at is this promise that God gave, that uh, Jesus gave in the first chapter, the promise of the Spirit. We're going to see the, the, this promised coming of the Holy Spirit. He is going to come. Um, the second thing we're going to look at is the apostolic proclamation of the gospel. We're going to see uh, Peter's first sermon. Peter's first sermon after the coming of the Spirit. And then lastly, we're going to see a description that Luke gives us of the early church. How was the early church um, functioning? How were they fellowshipping? How were they communing with each other? How were they acting? We're going to get a description of that, and we're going to look at that as well. Um, so let's, let's dive into it um, without any further ado here. I'm actually going to go against um, all the wisdom, and we're going to read a big section of this scripture. Um, I think it's okay because this is not a boring section of Scripture by any means. We're about to see the Spirit coming in power. Um, so, but I want to read this whole section together. Um, would somebody volunteer to read verses, chapter 2, verse 1 through um, 13? Can somebody loudly read that for us so everybody can, can follow? Josh has been volunteered. <laughs> read it for us. Yeah. The day of Pentecost had come they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the district of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, uh, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's the account there for us of the Spirit coming in power on the day of Pentecost. Okay, Pentecost is a word that comes from the Greek word pente. Pente meaning 50. It's actually a number. Um, and so at Pentecost, this is a celebration that occurred 50 days after the Passover. 
Okay, that's where the, the word comes from. Um, so if you look at Pentecost in the Old Testament, as you read through your Old Testament, you'll see it there referred to as several things. The Feast of Weeks is one way that they'll refer to it. They'll refer to it as the Feast of Harvest. And they'll call it the Feast of Harvest most of the time is because what was going on with this celebration was um, the Jews would come together um, to give to the Lord the first fruits of their wheat harvest. That's what would happen. It was the time, that, uh, the time of year that the wheat would be gathered, and so they would give to the Lord the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Um, uh, so it really just seems to me as we look at this chapter, it's just another coincidence um, that's in the Bible. Uh, you know how you had at Passover the celebration of, of the Jews celebrating the fact that God had mercy on all those who would sacrifice the lamb and cover their house with the blood. You know, and Jesus just so happened to be sacrificed at that time. Jesus happened to sacrifice his blood at the same time. And so here we see the Spirit coming at a time when uh, a great harvest is going to be poured out um, of souls. It's something the Bible describes as wheat, you know, you talk about the wheat and the tares. With the coming of the Spirit, it's going to be in a great harvest. And so it's just, I'm joking as I say it's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence. Amen. I think all of these things that God's designed um, just as another um, revelation of what he's doing in history. And so here at the celebration of the harvest, um, a, a, a huge harvest as we're going to be see actually happens. Um, and because most of you guys, I think the day of Pentecost and in the coming of the spirits, um, nothing new for us. I think a lot of us are familiar with this story. So we definitely don't want to get hung up in all the details. Uh, but I definitely want to put this event in perspective. And I, and I read a guy, or I listened to a guy, I could not figure out who it was that I had heard this from, but I thought it was very helpful to put this event in perspective. And this is how we did it. He said, um, you have God the Father at the beginning decreeing and um, initiating all of creation. Okay, that's an act of the Father. You know, he decided to do all of this. Of course, all of eternity is involved, but the Father is accredited for this decree um, and initiating salvation, we know it's through the Son, but the Father initiates all of this. Then we have the Son coming um, in the fulfillment of time to enter into that creation, to gain redemption for his people. That's the act of the Son. And now in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, we have the Spirit um, almost having his moment to shine, as you, if, you, if you would. He comes in and has his role, his part, of this great redemption, and we're going to see that he's empowering the church to, to preach the gospel of everything that God has done prior. Okay, so that's what's happening at Pentecost. The Spirit um, is at the forefront, really, in this work. Um, Pentecost, this, this event here is, this coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is happening 10 days following the ascension of Jesus. Remember, Jesus promised that the Spirit was going to come. He went to heaven. Um, this is 10 days following and uh, so the Spirit comes, as, as Josh read for us, it comes with all of this noise, the sound of a violent rushing wind, it said. There's these manifestations, visual manifestations of, of fire. These tongues of fire are given. Um, all these Christians have this, this special feeling of the Spirit, this abundant feeling. And, and all of this is going to contribute together to this um, great emboldening that it's going to give the uh, disciples as well as the apostles to do what Jesus said. He said, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be witnesses of him, and that's how um, this all is going to go down. They're going to be witnesses, and all of this is going to play into the great commission. Um, 
And Chris isn't here, uh, Brother Chris isn't here, but I wish he was, just because he asked a question last week that I, that I barely touched on, but I thought it would be more appropriate to deal with today. Uh, but the question is, is, okay, so if the Spirit's coming in such an abundant way, I mean, uh, I mean it's really is, it's unprecedented the way the Spirit comes in this moment. Um, one of our brothers asked last week, so how was the Spirit working in the Old Testament? What's, what, what's the difference between how the Spirit worked with the people of God and now we're seeing this, whoa, Pentecost, um, this great giving of the Spirit. What, what's going on there? What are all the differences? And like I said, I just touched on it last week. Um, but first, let me just almost reinforce what I think will make it easier to, to study this, is what are the similarities between um, the Spirit working in Old Covenant saints uh, before Christ and, and even during the time of Christ, and, and what are the similarities now? And I think a very helpful verse for this is John chapter 3, the first verses of John chapter 3, where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the, the secret disciple that comes by night, basically. Um, he, uh, he, he's inquiring of Jesus of all these things. He's convinced of who Jesus says he is. And uh, Jesus um, almost mockingly replies to, replies to him about some of these questions, some of the things he doesn't understand. And so let me read John 3, 5 to us. This is what Jesus tells Nicodemus, a, a, a teacher of the people of Israel. Jesus says to him in John 3, 5, Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then he goes on and tells them, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things. Uh, but what Jesus is emphasizing to him is the necessity of the Spirit of God to do a work in somebody if they're going to be saved. He's trying to explain to them the, the necessity of the Spirit of God working in somebody for them to believe. In the, in the words that he puts it, even to enter the kingdom of God, to be saved, to go to heaven, um, to be one of God's people, you must have the Spirit of God do a work in your life. Apart from that, you will not even be able to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so the, the point that I, the, the application I bring from that text is Jesus saying to an old covenant saint, to an old covenant teacher of the law, you should know that the Spirit has to do a work uh, for somebody to be saved. And Jesus holds them to a, accountable for that understanding. Uh, and just one more text on this that I think um, speaks to the issue is 1 Peter 1.10. Uh, 1 Peter 1.10, I'll, I'll just read it to you. Um, I have just a several verses. I don't want you to necessarily be chasing after me. Uh, but this is what Peter himself says. Peter, who's about to preach in Acts, he says, The prophets who were prophesying, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, they were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So there Peter explicitly mentions the, the Spirit of Christ being in these Old Testament prophets who were writing Scripture. Okay, so I just say all of that to, to, to show and to prove that the Spirit of God was definitely present, definitely working, had to be there for anyone to be saved, even in the Old Testament. Regeneration has always been a necessity. Okay, so that's just the foundation. Now to address really most people's question is, okay, so but now look how the Spirit's coming at Pentecost. What about, what about this? Uh, what maybe are the differences? What's the discontinuity between the Spirit in the Old Testament and the Spirit in the New? And I have, again, just a couple of verses that I think um, they don't answer every detail that we might be wondering about this, 
but they definitely clarify the fact that there is a difference. And, and we, I don't think it's even possible to iron out every single difference, but we just need to be aware that there is a difference. Um, there obviously is something different happening um, in this new covenant work of the Spirit. And let me read John 14, 17 um, about this. Because Jesus says to his disciples, this is, of, of course, pre-Pentecost, before the Spirit has come, Jesus is talking to them about the Spirit. And he says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, he says, But you know him. He's talking to his disciples about the Spirit. He says, You know him because he abides with you. But he doesn't stop there. He then says, And he will be in you. Future tense. So it's a very interesting text. And all of the commentators that are read hit on this text, reference it, and say, This is kind of what we're dealing with here. Jesus says that um, the disciples know the Spirit, they know Him, He's with them, but the distinction is He will be in you, right? It's, it's, it's tricky, and like I said, I can't even iron out all the distinctions, but I think what we have, and as we're going to see, I think it all comes down to the purpose that the Spirit is given, the way He is at Pentecost, helps us to understand why God did it like this. What was the purpose of the Spirit coming in this major way at Pentecost? It all has to do with God's timeline, how he's working out his redemption over time. That's what it all comes down to. And so this is the last verse I'm going to read. Um, it's John 7:38, and I think it speaks to just exactly what we're talking about. It's perfectly relevant. Jesus says this, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given. Interesting. He says the Spirit was not yet given. And then he goes on, because, and this is why I talk about this is the purpose why he hadn't been given in that sense, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's the reason the Spirit hadn't been given in the same way as the Old Covenant was because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so this is what I'm saying is the purpose of God. It's almost like what I began um, the, the class with is that God's doing something. He's been doing something. God created. Uh, the Son came into uh, the creation to work out redemption. And what Jesus himself is saying here is that all of that redemption was to be accomplished prior to the Spirit coming. Jesus had to come live that perfect life. He had to, to make that perfect sacrifice. He even had to rise from the dead and not just there. He had to be exalted to the right hand of the Father, all of that, before the Spirit was to come. And so all that happened, and now we have the Spirit coming in power to do what? To preach, to witness, to witness of everything that God's already done in the past. That's the timeline. That's, the thing is, that's as good as I can do is ironing out, well, why the difference? You know, we do recognize there is a difference. The Spirit is, is working in ways here at Pentecost that it's never worked before. Um, and so that, that's what I think the reasoning is behind it. Uh, maybe, maybe one more issue before I just open it up to maybe any questions. If you have any, you can ask in just a second. But um, I don't want to skip over this, this miracle um, of tongues that's happening here at Pentecost. Um, I don't want to fly over that. And again, just like I almost wanted to emphasize the purpose of the Spirit coming at this time in this way, um, I want to emphasize um, something that, that was helpful to me in studying this is, is the purpose of the tongues. 
why was this gift um, poured out at this time? And uh, what you find is in the book of Acts, the tongues are functioning um, as a sign, as an attestation that someone has in fact been filled by the Spirit of God, strictly for the believers. Those who have believed in the gospel message that's going out, um, it's, a, it's a proof that someone has in fact been filled um, with the Spirit. And what's so interesting about this is that as we see the accounts of the Spirit um, causing someone to speak in tongues, um, it's interesting when in the book of Acts that happens. Does anybody know how many times tongues is even mentioned in the book of Acts? Or maybe even a guess, maybe. Does anybody know how many times it's mentioned? By any chance? Three? Three? Yeah. I think explicitly it's mentioned three times. I think there's a fourth time that we can assume it's happening, but the word's not mentioned. Um, so really, three times explicitly, I think it's mentioned four. But what's even more interesting about that is when, the, when it occurs, when it's mentioned, when it's spoken of. It's interesting, because if, if you maybe have to flip one page back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is interesting, because in Acts 1, 8, I've already referenced it several times, this was Jesus' basically great commission call here. He says, you'll receive power, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, which are... are, are the same region he's speaking of, and even to the remotest parts of the earth, okay? It's very interesting how Jesus breaks up this expansion of the gospel because what we see, and as we'll see as we go through the book of Acts, is when you see tongues mentioned, it, it's mentioned every time the gospel goes to one of these new regions, right? So right here, as we're, as we're reading here, tongues is poured out at Pentecost, that's, that's the first region, Jerusalem. The gospel begins here in Jerusalem. Tongues are poured out. When we get to Acts chapter 8, um, it's going to move on to Judea and Samaria with Philip and Peter and John. Boom, again, Acts is, I mean, uh, uh, the tongues are produced um, to verify that, yes, uh, the gospel call is going out to this area. And then we have what I think are the last two instances of uh, tongues is when it goes to remotest parts of the earth. And we're going to see that in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's a, a Roman centurion. And he's going, to, he's going to speak in tongues there. And then one more instance. It's when Paul takes the gospel all the way to Ephesus. And there he's going to meet some of John the Baptist's disciples, some men who they said they didn't even know that the Holy Spirit was a person. They didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see tongues spoken of again there. And so... As you, as you think about the times that it's mentioned and, and the times that it occurs, you see it matching up with what Jesus called them to do and to go to all these different regions. And you see that um, being fulfilled. And I think it's important because even when, you read, even when you study Peter in the book of Acts, these Jews are still struggling with the concept of others being the people of God. They're still struggling with the, the reality that God's saving not just Jews. He's going out to Samaria. And so the Spirit is manifesting itself with tongues to, to, to prove that God, in fact, is saving the world, not just Israel. You know, same thing when he goes to Cornelius, a Gentile, and to all the way to Ephesus. It's verification that the gospel is, in fact, being accepted and, and is effectually working in people other than the Jews. That's, that's really what I see 
um, as the purpose. So that's, that's the first section there that I have for you guys. I just wanted to open it up for any questions, any comments even, anything you guys have on that. Yes, sir. Uh, you were talking about one of the distinctions, at least one of, one of them that I see is kind of what you were talking about, is the issue of tongues. Mm -hmm. And here in verse 11, to me, one of the purposes of the tongues the chairs today were speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Mm -hmm. And so in the Old Testament, we understand that tongues was not used, or at least to our knowledge, it wasn't used as speaking from the patriarchs declaring the mighty deeds of God. And yet yeah. here is one of the differences. Yeah, yeah, definitely the, the purpose of this mighty work of God is in, in general, and all of this happening right here is, is to witness, is to witness of what God has done. That's, that's definitely the purpose of this um, and it's already 1.30 so we're going to move I know guys it's, it's, trust me it's, it hurts me more than it hurts you um, let's go on because now Peter having re received this this spirit in this abundance is going to preach here we're going to see um, the apostolic proclamation of the gospel and uh, if you remember the last thing Josh read for us is that some mocked it said some mocked this miracle that was occurring. Um, there was still unbelief. They accused him of being drunk even. And that does not discourage um, Peter in the least bit. Peter takes advantage of this, this, this commotion, this noise that the Spirit has caused, that by bringing all these people together, he's going to take advantage here. And uh, so let's, let's read, uh, beginning at verse 14, um, the words of Peter. Yeah, verse 14 says, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, excuse me, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day, which what Peter means by that is just in the way that they account time. He's saying it's the morning. It would have been like 8 or 9 in the morning. He's saying nobody's drunk at 8 or 9 in the morning. That's not what's happening here. He says, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And so Peter's going to quote um, a section of scripture by the prophet Joel found in Joel chapter 2 that prophesies this event, prophesies the coming of the Spirit in the last days. And let's just read a couple of verses of that, verse 17. He, this, is, this is him quoting Joel. It says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that's important as well, what Joel says, what the prophets say, God says, he says that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. And if you'll drop down to verse 20, he says, the sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, and all this before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Peter recognizes um, this prophecy of Joel being fulfilled here that's foretelling of what we're seeing, this, this massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, and here what God's signaling really is God's preparing the world for the great and glorious day of the Lord that's to come. He's preparing. It's been prophesied. Um, the preparation time has been fulfilled through the Spirit um, coming in this way. And so as the, the, the great and glorious day of the Lord, which is going to be a terrible day for those who don't believe, um, he, he's in his grace warning. He's putting out the message, this day is coming. And in his grace, as verse 21 said, 
This is the truth that remains throughout all of these end days, these last times. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That promise remains, and that's what the message will be preached. It is the gospel. In all these last times, before this great and glorious day of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message that we have um, before that day comes. Verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. And so right here we're about to see Peter. Peter's about to set forth Christ. He's about to set Christ before them. Christ is Lord. And he's telling them, this should be obvious. The works that God did through Jesus Christ should be um, all the attestation you need, all the proof. I mean, look at these miracles, miracles, wonders, and signs, all the things he says that you guys know that Jesus was doing. Jesus said the same thing. If you don't believe my words, my work should testify that I'm from God. Yeah. You know, this should be obvious, he tells them. Um, and now Peter's going Peter's to reassure the people that the death of Christ is not an accident. He's going to prove to them that this was not something that happened out of, that was out of the control of Christ even, out of the control of God. It was no accident, and this is an important point to the Jews, because the death of the Messiah to the Jews who misunderstood, who were ignorant of what the Bible was trying to teach, um, that's completely unacceptable to them. So there's Messiah to be put up on a cross is unacceptable to them. That is not what they expected of the Messiah. So it's a stumbling block to them. When Jesus Christ is up on that cross, he obviously couldn't be the Messiah. You know, the Romans took him out. Um, but look what verse 23 says. Peter's trying to explain this to me. He says, this man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so Peter tells them the death of Christ was not an accident. It was predetermined. This death of Christ was predestined to occur. And the death of Christ um, is, is really the ultimate reason of why God created anything. God created everything decreed everything to be just as it is so that Christ could come in and ransom some people, so that he could be glorified in saving some people. It, there's no accidents with God in that sense. Um, so, yeah, as I said, this, is, this was the purpose of God. The purpose of God was for Christ to be crucified, not an accident. And uh, what's really interesting about this text, I mean, that shouldn't surprise anybody that God's sovereign, but sometimes working out his sovereignty is difficult. Um, here he says, look what God uses to work out his purposes. This is the interesting part. The text says that godless men were used. These men, the Jews and the Romans who crucified Christ, that's what God used to work out his perfect and beautiful plan of salvation. Sinful men. And they were more than willing to, to work out their hatred of God, their hatred of the Son of God to put Christ on a tree. And, uh, and so this is what we're seeing here. We're seeing the sovereignty of God using the sinfulness of man to fulfill his purposes. Um, and you've really got to understand this. This has to be something that, this is a truth that you have to make sense of. You need to have it in your heart. You need to, to rest in this truth. Is that this is why there's evil. People stumble over, I mean, like, not that it's a legitimate excuse, you know, but uh, this is one of those questions that some people say is the hardest question for humanity. Why is there evil? 
If God is good, why is there evil in the world? They, they can't make sense of it. But this is a text that explains the reason why God's using it um, for his ultimate purposes. Christ couldn't save unless there were sinners. There couldn't be sinners unless there was sin. This is all working to God's glory. Right? This is something you need to accept. And something really, when hard times come and when sin comes in your life and when um, death comes in your life and all these hard things of, of, of life, this is the truth you need to have or you will be confused. You will stumble. You will question God. But, but right here, Peter's setting it forth for them that this is not outside the will of God. God actually planned for the, the worst sin that's ever happened. He planned for it. And uh, Peter is going to go on to give just another proof, another assurity to the people of God that the death of Christ was of God. The affirmation that this was all of God and the proof is the resurrection, verse 24. He says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And now, Peter again, using the Old Testament, is going to quote a prophecy of King David from Psalm 16. And let's just read one line of it. Read the second line of verse 27. Because um, Paul as well picks up on this in Paul's preaching. He says, Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now the apostles, Peter and Paul, both pick up on this text as evidence and proof of the prophecy of the resurrection from the dead. God will not allow his Holy One to see decay. And if you go on, uh, reading verse 29 and following, um, because David wrote this, and uh, David was the king on God's throne at that time, Peter goes on to make the point that this text about the Holy One not undergoing decay could not be speaking about David. And he goes on to show them that David is in his grave still. You know where his grave is. He's in there decaying. This could not be referring to David, but God did raise one up. Verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we were all witnesses. Okay, so the proof of the resurrection, again, is the verification that this is all of God. This is all God's working. Um, verse 34, lastly, Peter's going to make one last plea with them to show them Christ, to show them Christ is Lord. And he's going to do it with another prophecy from the Psalms. Psalm 110, uh, one of the most well-known and, and used verses in the New Testament from the Old it says, verse 34, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, this is David speaking, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36, Therefore, let all the, the house of Israel know for certain, to know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so Peter declares the lordship of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament, from the Psalms. Um, he's showing them that Jesus Christ is Lord and he will be victorious over all, all his enemies. That's the message of Peter. Notice what his message and his preaching is not. Peter's message is not Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the message of the apostolic preaching. It's, it's literally just the opposite. Peter says, Pointedly, you are the very worst of sinners. You crucified the Messiah. And that Messiah whom you crucified is at the right hand of God right now. And he's going to come back one day and, and stand on the necks of his enemies in victory. That's the message of apostolic preaching, the lordship of Christ. Not, you know, what 
some of us may be raised to hear or what maybe you hear on some street corners, they're preaching Christ as Lord. And when the Spirit um, works with that message, um, we're going to see here in verse 37, the people, when they heard this preaching, when they heard this, they said they, or they, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Wally, is that not, is that not what you wish you would hear every time you preach the gospel? You know, the, the, the preacher's dream is that as you preach Christ, that the Spirit would bring conviction and people would cry out, What, what must we do? You know, that's, that's a preacher's dream come true. And, and here, let's get into Peter's response, because there's so much here. This is probably where we'll, where we'll be for the rest of the time, unfortunately. But look what Peter says to them. Peter says, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God, our God will call to himself. And so the first thing that I want us to hit on here in Peter's response, response is what he says to them. They're saying, what must we do to be saved from the Lord, from the Lordship of Christ and from his, from his wrath? And Peter's answer is repent. Now what's interesting about this and what, what I really want to do is stop and take a drink and let somebody, who would, who would like to take a stab at how it is Peter can simply say repent without mentioning um, belief or the word faith? How is it that he can convey, which of course we know he's conveying, how is it he can simply say repent and, and not mention faith? I thought we were saved by grace through faith. Josh, yeah. Um, I think there's two, I think, from just the volume one, the book of Luke, you could see in the ministry of Jesus when it starts, <laughs> repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Yeah. Uh, you see that in Matthew as well. You see even with the Essenes and even before this time, the ancient culture was when you're repenting, they understood it was changing your whole life. Mm-hmm. It was changing your whole conduct. It was changing your, changing your whole uh, way in which you conduct yourself. Uh, that's, it's kind of like when Peter says uh, in his, one of his epistles, I believe it is, to, um, oh, I forgot the verse now. Uh, but basically, like, your whole conduct has to be all-encompassing of what it attests to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I think here you've already had you've already had that paved way in the culture. Mm-hmm. Not to mention John preparing the way for what is a baptism of repentance yeah. to a true uh, of, of, of the foretelling of, of the ministry of Jesus. And now that yep. it's at its completion, the apostles are picking up the baton and making it clear what that is. I think as well with the idea of, of baptism in there. Um, Let's wait on that part. Okay. That's next. That's next. But, okay. but no, I think that's a, that's a very good reason. I think that's the perfect answer because, as Josh said, Peter already told them, you guys know of all these things that Jesus has done. They're not a stranger to the work and ministry of Jesus. Jesus has been preaching, you know, everyone who believes on me will not, you know, be judged. I mean, that's the message they've been hearing. And, but, and also what Josh is saying is the biblical usage of the word repent brings with it all of, all of this meaning that we know it has. Okay, so he doesn't necessarily have to say repent and believe, although they do say that a lot of the times. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark 1.15 is repent and believe the good news. There he uses both words. but So we know that, the, that Peter is conveying the full sense of what it means to repent. 
To repent means, of course, to turn from your sin, but of course we know that it doesn't stop there. That wasn't the message is, is your being able to stop sinning is what's going to save you. That's never the, the, the message. Uh, because if you tell a sinner to stop sinning, even if he can do that, even if he never sins again his entire life, he's still going to hell. You know, it's not that ability to stop sinning that saves you. It's the, it's the turning from your sins to faith in Christ. That's what saves. Amen. You can't stop it not sinning. They're already a sinner. They're, they are a sinner. They're sinful and they're going to go to hell. They need to turn to Christ in faith. I mean, Peter's been preaching Christ the whole time. So the, 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 the object of, of their turning to is, of course, Christ. Well, I was just going to say, you know, maybe the easiest way to look at it is that, you know, repentance and faith is one coin, two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. You can't have one without the other. Yeah. So anytime repentance is mentioned, faith is implied. Every time somebody has faith in Christ, repentance is implied. Exactly. You can't have one without the other. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and we can maybe do it if you have questions later, because the same language is going to be used um, in the rest of the preaching through the book of Acts. So if you get any more questions come up with that, please ask, because that, that's a gospel presentation distinctive that we need to understand is what, what do they mean by repent. Um, next, and Josh kind of mentioned it, this is maybe even a, a more difficult question. I think it is a more difficult question. How is it that, Paul, uh, that Peter mentions baptism in the same breath when he's speaking to these people about what they must do to be saved. He said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, it's an important, a very important verse um, to grasp, to understand, to be able to work through, because I, I think I had in my notes that a lot of works righteous groups use this verse. The more I thought about it, that's wrong. Every single works righteous group points you to Acts 2.38. And what they're doing is they're trying to show you and disprove the fact that you're saved by faith alone. Mm-hmm. That's the doctrine that they're usually um, speaking against um, when it comes to this issue. Um, and so you, you have to be able to deal with this passage. You need to rec- reconcile it in own, your own mind for your own faith. What does Peter mean here? Um, and so just in dealing with this, what we know Peter is not saying is usually the easiest thing to deal with by everything else the Bible says. You know, we refer to it as the analogy of the faith. It just means you always interpret Scripture with other Scripture. Scripture, of course, is inspired by the Spirit of God. It's not going to contradict itself. Uh, we can trust that. So we know that we're not saved by our works. Um, I would say you can even prove to yourself, if you're wondering if God considers baptism a work maybe, uh, which might be a legitimate question is, I thought of the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, well, what is baptism? It's a sign of the new covenant. It's a sign that you've entered into the new covenant, just like circumcision was a sign that you're in the old covenant. Um, Paul anathematizes and tells people that they are damned if they take circumcision in order to be saved. So to take on the sign of the covenant, to add that to faith, Paul condemns that as as a damnable heresy. And so there's no difference in adding and changing the, the sign of the covenant and now saying you're required to do baptism, the sign of the new covenant. There again, you're, lo- you're leaving faith alone and you're now adding the sign as a work um, to be saved. Um, what's helpful for me to maybe understand this, because it's not only here that you see baptism in the Bible being referenced very closely with salvific language. And so it, it, it's something you want to understand. But in this instance, because it's Peter saying it, I want to reference another 
time in Peter's epistle, 1 Peter 3.21, where he again references baptism explicitly in a salvific um, language. 1 Peter 3.21. He says this. Peter says, corresponding to that, he had just talked about um, the salvation of Noah and his family through the ark. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Wow. There's a verse if you... Um, believe that you going and getting dunked with water is going to save you, that's, if you stop there, it's a good verse. But what's important is, look what Peter here clarifies for us. He says, it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Amen. It's not you getting washed by this water. That's not what does anything. He says, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. And that's where he's emphasizing the aspect of your faith and your calling out to God for a clean heart. And I think it's very easy, um, and not wrong, of course, for them to, to put baptism in such a close context. Because you would have, as we'll see in Acts, they're all baptized immediately. John the Baptist is standing in the water, you know, repent and be baptized. And so it's just showing you that acting out of their faith. If these people believe the gospel message, um, you know what they're going to do if they have faith? They're going to get baptized. And that's going to be the outworking of their, of their faith, is baptism. And this is something that would explicitly show the proof that they did have faith by taking Christian baptism. Because to take Christian baptism means, guess what? You're leaving Judaism. You're making a public declaration that I am no longer under the old covenant I am in the new covenant, and your family will put you out of the house. Your boss, who's a Jew, would probably fire you. Um, you're out of the synagogue, you know. Um, this was a step to take Christian baptism that really just showed the seriousness of uh, somebody's commitment to Christ. It's like Romans 10.9, anybody who confesses with the mouth will be saved. Well, that's very easy for us to take that verse. Okay, anybody who's ever said, Jesus is Lord, you know. But back then, this is different. If you got baptized, you were confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, and you were leaving everything, Maybe, probably even your family. Um, so I just, I say I'll have to show you the significance of what baptism was, especially then. I think it's still around today, it's just not in our culture as much with the distinctiveness. Emilio uh, was out in Southlake one time, and mm -hmm. he was talking with a guy from was it India, Pakistan, that the pastor over there, he was out there baptizing that young lady, and she was uh, repenting from Islam. In Southlake? No, no, no. Oh. This is the pastor. He's telling a story okay. in Southlake okay. about okay. back in Indonesia. Or in Indonesia. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, she gets baptized into Christ. Okay. She's, she's making a declaration, and the pastor says, now go and tell all your family what you did. Right. So they lived in the 16th floor and over there in Indonesia, and as soon as she told them that she declared Christ and was baptized in Christianity, mm -hmm. uh, they threw out the 16th floor mm -hmm. window and killed her. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's still around today. You're making the declaration that you've died and rose again with Jesus Christ when yeah. you're doing that. Uh, but also, I think that preposition there, uh -huh. for the forgiveness of sins, can be translated as well because of yep. the forgiveness of sins, the ace. Uh, I mean, everybody says it can be, but they never do. That's why I kind of deal with the way they translate yeah. it. Everybody, yeah. There's, I mean, there's many options on how to translate um, ice in that sentence there, but for some reason they all... You know, it's a legitimate translation if you understand what Peter's not saying. Yeah. You know, so in that sense, I'm okay with it. Uh, but yeah, like what Josh is saying is to take this baptism was a, 
a, a real confession that you are a Christian. And that's what's so hard, I think, for us as a church now is, you know, um, you can come to, uh, when I say now, I don't, I mean here in America pretty much, like, I got baptized three times before I was saved, you know. There was no real commitment happening there. Everybody's just patting you on the back, you know. Good job, you know, you did it. Finally you worked it up to believe. Um, and that's the difference. That's the difference. Back then, that's not what was happening. So when somebody got baptized, they were saved. You know, they, they meant it. Um, whereas today, it's hard for us to tell if somebody's really made a commitment. Just because somebody says they're willing to get baptized, I mean, that's not really putting too much pressure on them. You know what I mean? Um, so let's, let's leave it there um, as far as that is concerned. And I just want to read one last verse, and I think we're going to have to go. Verse 40 and 41 says this, and with many other words. That's, a, that's, that's also, uh, sorry, that's also important because that shows us that this is not all that Peter said was just what we have right here. He would have explained to them all the details that they would have wanted to know about salvation. It says, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting and saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added 3,000 souls. That's why I talk about it's not a coincidence that the Spirit of God comes on the celebration of the harvest. Because here we see a great harvest of 3,000 souls being saved by, by one message. I mean, that's, that's nuts. 3,000 in one day. Um, I mean, I know just with our church growth, that's a lot of work, just as slow as we're growing. Imagine 3,000, boom! Now these 12 apostles have to manage a church of 3,000 in one day. Man, we put Scott to work. You know, and, you know that's what we would do. Um, yeah, so let, let's leave it there for now. Um, if, if Pastor Miller, if you don't mind, uh, because you're well aware of the description of the early church and uh, how, how their fellowship was going on. I'm going to read that maybe in my announcements. Just read a real short section. and uh, So we'll cover it in that way. Next week, guys, if you would, I think the best thing for me to ease my conscience, and it will be better for you as well, is if you read, if you can, read the text that we're going to cover. Um, because doing an overview, you know, you know, it hurts me to not cover everything. So if you guys have read it, it's going to make you much more familiar to make all this very much easier. Um, let's try to do Acts 3, 4, and 5 next week. Okay? Got some work. But uh, that's what I'm going to try and cover. So anything you see in that text, you know, be prepared. I'm going to do my best to leave uh, time for discussion and all of that. Uh, so that's what we're trying to do next week. Okay? Let, let, me, let me pray and we'll go to worship. Well, Father, we thank you for um, everything you've done in our redemption. We thank you for creating God in the first place. And Father, and I thank, um, I thank you for sending your Son. And Jesus, we thank you for being willing to humble yourself and to become a sacrifice for us. And to the Spirit, we thank you, God, for filling us, for empowering us, for bringing to our minds the, the truth and working out all of your revelation that's, that's happened. Um, God, you are a an unbelievable God without the Spirit. Um, your triune and your nature and, and without the, the Spirit, it's almost unbelievable, God. Um, you're, you're, you're a wonderful God, and we thank you for everything you've done. Um, help us to worship you and to praise you 
um, as we go on to our worship service, bless Pastor Emilio and his preaching. I pray that our church would be in one mind, Father, around your scriptures, God. I pray that we would in unity hear your word and rejoice over it. Um, bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen.